talk to you this morning about furniture. We're still in the 25th chapter of the book of Exodus. We want to look at the table and the lampstand. Last week we looked at the ark. We're taking these in order. I think it's important that we do take the time. It's very easy for us to just kind of rush over these things. But I think that there are tremendous implications in our study for them. One of the strongest drives that a human being has, and, and we have a number of strong drives that compel us. But one of the strongest drives a person has is to satisfy physical hunger. Would you agree with me? Uh, I, I suspect that the vast, vast majority of us have never, ever really gone hungry. Now, we've been hungry. Um, I... I as you can tell, I get hungry. <laughs> and uh, especially during the winter, you know, you, I put on my winter coat. And when you fast, I don't know about you, but when I fast, I, I never, never really think that much about In-N-Out until when I fast. <laughs> I mean, I love In-N-Out hamburgers, you know, double-double with fries and a Diet Coke. You have to cut corners where you can, isn't that true? <laughs> but basically, we know, we understand that without food, a person would starve. There is this drive to satisfy, to satiate, if you will, this need, this hunger issue in our life. But I want to press that a little bit further. There's a greater hunger uh, in man, and that is a spiritual hunger. Spiritual hunger is far greater, but it's much more subtle than physical hunger. The spiritual hunger is evidenced many times by a vague sense of dis-ease just under the surface of a person's life. A spiritual hunger is evidenced by uh, a sense of there's got to be something more. Or maybe you thought this or said this to yourself, something's missing. I can't quite put my finger on it, but something's missing. I've tried to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but something is missing. And we look around and we search around in the midst of uh, the, the responsibilities and duties of our day and of our life, and uh, we're, we're trying to find that whatever it is that will, in, in, in effect, satiate or satisfy that longing down deep in us that we can't even hardly identify, which I call spiritual hunger. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, a marvelous, that's a marvelous section in, in the first chapter of Colossians. If you've never studied it, it's just great to read it and meditate on it. And it, he really, Paul really talks about the supremacy of Christ, and that he is all in all and so forth. And in verse 16, uh, he tells us that all things were created by him and for him. And I want to accentuate the latter part of that. All things were created not only by him, but for him. Part of the implication of that, very simply, is found in the fact that in the beginning God created man, but what did God create man for? For himself. God created us for him. For relationship. That's why the Bible talks about man as the only aspect of God's creation being made in his image. We are made in his image. We're like him He's communicated certain qualities that he possesses to us so that it would, we would now be competent for relationship. We could relate back. Man was to find his life. He was to find his meaning. He was to find his purpose. He was to find his fulfillment in his relationship with God. God 
meant to be everything to us and everything for us. We were created for Him. And when you sit down and just contemplate that for a little while, Sometimes in the busyness of our lives, we, we don't sit and think. Somebody asked me last night, do you, ever, do, you ever, do, you ever, do you have a regular time where you're just quiet? And I said, all the time. I muse, I think. I, I'm just quiet. Like to close the door, my office at home or my office here, and just be quiet. And these, these, these things resonate in me, and I, and I want to I just... Think on them. God made me for Him. What an awesome concept. And all that I do and all that I'm about and all that I purpose really means nothing apart from Him. It's like you you come home You come home to be with him. We all know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Theologically, it's known as the fall of man. Man created in a state of perfection, fell to a state of imperfection through his disobedience, his lack of trust, his unwillingness to, to remain dependent on God. And he succumbed to the temptation to become independent, do his own thing. Does that sound vaguely familiar? It's been the bane of our existence ever since, hasn't it? So it was because of the fall of man that man separated himself from God. God never left. Man separated himself. And what was meant to be fulfillment in that relationship with God became hunger. What God meant for us in that relationship that he would be all in all, ended up creating in us an emptiness, spiritual hunger. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Think about that. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And what does that mean? It ultimately means coming home. It means surrender to him. It means truly, Lord, your will, not mine. You look around this world and you see the conflict and the turmoil and the grief and the loss and the pain and the sorrow. Much of it because we're on our own. We're not rightly related. We're, we're not back in that fellowship with him where he is all. We're, we're running out there. We're, we're trying to fill that hunger. We're trying to fill that emptiness. We're trying to fill that restlessness, that, trying to find that one thing that's going to give me peace, that's going to just sate my life, that's going to, just going to do it for me. <laughs> if I could just have a better job, I can make more money. If I, oh, I, just, I, just, if I just had another $100,000 a year, wouldn't that do it? Wouldn't that be nice? If I just had a wife or a husband or a child, there are longings quite legitimate in the human heart. But sometimes I think we step over a, over a line, those longings become the driving force of our life, and soon God is just a means to an end rather than the end. Does that make sense to you? And we bargain with God. Anybody ever bargain with God? God, if you do this and such, I promise I'll, you know, I'll go to church. I'll even go to mini church. No, we try to fill that emptiness, that hunger, that longing with everything but God. Whether it be sex, 
money, partying, fame, pleasure, possessions, position, power, and we can go on and on with the list, can't we? We all know the list, right? But nothing truly satisfies our spiritual hunger. It's like you become an addict to those things, and as soon as you reach a new level of satiation, it's not quite enough. Because why? Our hearts are restless, so they rest in Him. That's the truth. And we say, yes, I've heard that, I know that, I know that, but have we embraced it? And have we come to terms with it every day? It's not like you can make a decision this morning and say, okay, I've taken care of that part of my life. No, it's every day, because why? The flesh rebels. The world continues to to, uh, uh, appeal to the flesh in an attempt to seduce us away from our loyalty. And we have a spiritual adversary who is roaming about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So it's daily that we're in this conflict. Daily we're in this battle to stay in a place where God is our sufficiency. The hunger of the human heart can be met by God and by God alone. Beloved, this is what the table is all about. This is what the table is all about. This is what the bread of the presence is all about that we read about. The table and the bread that's going to be displayed on the table in the presence of God points simply to God as the provision of life. As the one who provides whatever is necessary uh, to meet the hunger in man. Now, you recall last week we looked at the, uh, at the uh, Ark of the Covenant. That was the first piece of furniture that God uh, designed and told Moses to have the people build and construct. The Ark of the Covenant was to go where? Now, you see a, a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold, and the cherubim both facing inward over the cover with their wings outspread, uh, the cover, of course, we also know is the mercy seat. That was where the blood was sprinkled, uh, signif- signifying that uh, uh, the sacrifice for sin was made. The high priest once a year would do that on the Day of Atonement. That was in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is a, is a cube, small room, the only piece of furniture in there. And the only person who could go in there once a year was the high priest, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And then we talked about it last week. He rushed in and rushed out. (laughs) Lest he be in the presence of God a little too long and uh, be confronted by his own righteous unrighteousness and God kill him. Now just outside of the Holy of Holies was the holy place. We should, I think we have a picture. Yeah, now that, that's a replica of the holy place. You see that blue um, curtain there? That's, that's the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. There were three pieces of furniture in the holy place. There, the one that's most close to the, to the, to the uh, veil, that is the altar of incense. We'll get to that uh, in due time. On the right-hand side, you can barely see it. That's the table that we're talking about now. And then also the lampstand on the left-hand side. These were in the holy place. This is the place where the priests would minister. They would minister through a variety of ways, and we'll talk about that as we work our way through these passages. But those were the three uh, articles of furniture placed in the holy place. The table, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. Now the table like the ark, was constructed out of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And again, the acacia wood, as we said last week with respect to the ark, the acacia wood pointed us to the humanity of Jesus. The gold pointed us to his deity. So the dual nature, hypostatic union of Christ. The same is true of the table. 
Tables made out of acacia wood overlaid with gold and would speak also of Jesus in his humanity and his deity. Now this table is a table of provision. Because what's going to be placed on it? Bread. It's a table of provision. So it pictures Christ. See, the table not only pictures him in terms of his nature, but it also pictures him in terms of his role. Jesus provides, doesn't he? He is our provision. He provides spiritual life. Without him, there is no hope. Isn't that true? Unless Jesus consented to come down here and live, take on flesh, and die in our place on that cross, pay the full price for our sins, you and I have no hope. You can't be a good person and get into heaven. We tried, Joe tried, for 93 years. A righteous Jewish man. Thought he was a good man. And he was a good man. He is a good man. What was? He is a good man. Good guy. I love him. I think he's a swell guy. But he had to come to terms, as you and I, with the fact that we're never good enough in and of ourselves. How many good works do you have to do? How many is enough? You never know. It's much better to turn to Jesus, who was good enough, perfect, perfectly fulfilled the law, and his righteousness is credited to our account by faith. So now we have life. So Jesus represented by that table, is our provision for life. Isn't that marvelous? We come to the Lord's table, don't we? There's a table over here, there's a table over here. The first weekend of every month, congregationally, we receive communion. We come to the Lord's table. That table reminds us of who? Jesus and his provision through his death, his shedding of his blood and so forth, so that we have life. So the table is a picture of his provision, not only of his nature in terms of his humanity, his deity, but also of his provision. The table's purpose, again, was to hold the bread of the presence. The bread was placed before the presence of God. God's presence literally was behind that curtain dwelling above the Ark of the Covenant. But again, his presence, no one could come into his presence save the high priest once a, day, once a year. And so the bread was placed before his presence in that outer court. The table would sit just outside, as you saw, the Holy of Holies right before the presence of God. And it was presented, that bread on that table was presented, in effect, as an offering to God of thanksgiving and also an expression of dependence upon God. Does that sound vaguely familiar? We offer our lives as living, what? Sacrifices. Why? Because of his mercy to us first. So in effect, we're continually saying, God, thank you. In fact, we could never say thank you enough to him for what he has done. And when you're truly grateful, you just say thank you. Now, you and I, we get tired of people saying thank you to us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. It's just not enough already, right? Well, God doesn't say that. Because he knows we need to express thanks. And we get frustrated when we want to thank somebody and they say, stop thanking me, but we still want to thank them. Does that make sense? Does this, am I, are we tracking? Am I saying things that you're going, yeah. Okay. Well, sometimes you have to give me a little bit of feedback. Because I think something maybe I'm not connecting. So the bread, the bread was that. And write this, write this passage down. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. We're not going to read it, but that talks to you and describes the bread itself and how it's to be baked and so forth. And there's terrific, terrific imagery in there, and I'll leave you to meditate on that and try to discover it for yourself. But in that passage, we're told the bread was baked, and, it was, it was to be, and, and how many loaves were to be baked? Anybody know? Twelve. 
12 loaves were to be baked, and those 12 loaves were to be placed on the table. They were to be presented to God, in effect, as an offering. What did the 12 loaves represent? The 12 tribes. There was an offering from each tribe and for each tribe. The priests offered the loaf on behalf of each tribe and from each tribe. Expression of what? Thanksgiving and dependence. The people were to continually acknowledge his grace to them, his provision for them, and as well, uh, their dependence upon him. Do we need to acknowledge our dependence on him? All the time. God, I need you. Now, he knows that, but we need to say it. We need to be consciously aware and acknowledging our dependence on him because as you and I go about our day, we forget about him. And we're Americans. We're, in, we're educated, independent, capable. We built the strongest country in the world. We don't need God. We can do it on our own. You can fall into that mentality, huh? When in fact we need to be mindful. And this bread was to be on that table uh, all week. All week. Constant reminder. Perpetual reminder to the people of God. Now the loaves also acknowledge their trust in him. God, we trust you. It's like an expression of faith. Lord, I trust you. I, I'm going to live my life as an act of worship to you. Regardless of my circumstance, I trust you. I know that you're faithful. I know that you're faithful because your word tells me. The bread of the presence, not just the table, but the bread itself pointed to Jesus Christ pointed to him as the bread of life. Scripture declares that Jesus is the living bread who came out of heaven to satisfy the hunger of a person's soul. Jesus acknowledges that we have this spiritual hunger. And just as the bread supplied the the needs of the priests, The priests would eat that bread. They were the only ones allowed to eat that bread and they have to eat it in the holy place before the presence of God. Peter calls the church, he calls true believers, a royal priesthood, doesn't he? 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And so Jesus, being the bread of life, pictured by the bread on the table, which fed the priests, Jesus, our bread... We feed on him. He meets our needs. You see the parallel? Jesus is our bread. The bread points to him. The table points to him. The bread points to him. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. You see, he's, he's talking about that spiritual hunger. Not talking about physical hunger, but he uses the analogy of bread to meet a hunger, but he's talking about a greater hunger, spiritual hunger. Think about that. I mean, we, so many of us have read these verses so often that they, they just, we just kind of read past them and we don't stop and camp out on them. And when you camp out on a verse like that, you say, He who comes to me will never go hungry. You have to stop and examine your life as a believer and say, is that true of me? I've come to him. Am I still hungry? Am I looking to other things and and other people to to fill this need? Am I is something still missing? Or, Or is he really all I need? Has your life come to a screeching halt and, and you're now you're going, Lord, I, I I'm really not that ambitious for for what I used to be ambitious for. I'm not chasing after what I used to chase after for. Because you're everything to me. 
You know, I was thinking about, uh, and I didn't say this in other services, and I'm going to digress for a second. Is that okay? Can I digress? It'll make the sermon longer. <laughs> Rommel doesn't mind. He loves it. That's why he sits in the front row, makes his family sit there, his wife, two boys, Stephen and Al. I was thinking about Forrest Gump. And I was just musing about Forrest Gump the other day, and, and it just came to my mind just now, so that's why I want to digress. Here was a guy, apparently, who, who really wasn't ambitious for much, except that girl, right? Kept. But it's just kind of like, he says, you know, he says, life is kind of like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Now, that's kind of a fatalistic kind of a thing, but, but in a sense, here's a person who, if you could... If you could Imagine this is the Christian life. You, you're, you're, you're not striving. It's God opens a door. You walk through the door. You're trusting Him. And whatever He provides, whatever chocolate He provides that day, that's okay. I'll, 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 this is what you provided for me today. Not anxious. Now the analogy breaks down certainly because it's imperfect. But, but does that does that strike you the way it struck me? Some of you it does? Okay. I should, probably shouldn't have digressed. <laughs> Just, well, the pastor said we should go see Forrest Gump because <laughs> Forrest Gump is like Jesus. No, no, I'm not. If you just woke up, I'm not going there, all right? Let's <laughs> stick to my notes. John... <laughs> John chapter 6, verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What's he mean by that? In John chapter 6, verse 50 and 51, he takes it further. He says, here is the bread that comes down from heaven. Who's he talking about? Himself. Which a man may eat and not die. Now look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Now, you know and I know, if you read on in that passage, uh, he's talking, who's he talking to? He's talking to a Jewish audience. And they were commanded by the Mosaic Law to not eat any, anything with blood in it, much less human flesh. This is abhorrent to them. And yet he's saying it. But it's a figure of speech, isn't it? He's not saying literally you've got to chomp on my arm. He's speaking figuratively, and yet the people don't see it. And John says everybody left him. This is a hard saying. But the point is, God knows what we need to thrive on And we need to consume Jesus. How many have heard this saying? You are what you eat. <laughs> right? Keep going to Durban Flavors. You keep going to In-N-Out. You're going to be like a big old fat burger. <laughs> no, you are what you eat. So the question is, where are you feeding what are you eating to satiate, to fill that space? What comes in my eye gate and my ear gate? What am I exposing myself to uh, for the predominance of my life? Am I consuming Jesus? Do I really see him? Do I really believe that he is my bread of life? Do I really believe that? I love what Paul says. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. See, there it is again. It's just stated a little different way. 
Hunger. Spiritual hunger. We put on other people, say, you got to be this to me, you got to be that to me, i got to have this, i got to have that. We obsess about so much, when in fact Jesus says, what about me? I'm, I'm your everything. Come to me, come to me, and you will never again hunger, and you won't be a pain in the neck to the people around you. Now, just as man suffers from a spiritual hunger, he also lives in spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. It is a reality. Spiritual darkness, it does exist. Whether or not people want to acknowledge it, whether or not people want to recognize it, spiritual darkness does exist. It is prevalent throughout the world. I mean, we see it so clearly if, you're, if you are an informed believer and your eyes have been opened, you see it so clearly in the world. You see the darkness. And you almost marvel at how come, how come people persist in the dark. It's just mind-boggling. But then you stop back and think, oh, I too was in the darkness. Until God, by his mercy, opened my eyes. In every nation, every culture, Literally millions upon millions upon millions of people are stumbling about in the darkness. Literally stumbling about. The clearest picture of the, is, is what's known in, 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 in the missionary literature as the 1040 window. That's the latitude in which the Middle East is captured. The 1040 window Dark. Dark. And you see the effect in those cultures. People in, those, in the world who are stumbling about in the darkness, they, they, they're trying to find a way. They, they know, again, just like there's a spiritual hunger, they know that there's darkness. They try to find their way out through a number of means, one of which is their own, um, their own life, how they live. I'm a good person, I'm a righteous person. There's, there's an impetus that says there's something more. I'm not there yet. I've got to do good stuff to get there. Or they are trying to find their way through life by following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Cults, false religions. And yet they're stumbling about, falling ever more deeply into the abyss. Hearts crying out for some direction, some leading. People say, well, <laughs> this is one of the arguments, you know, that... that People argue against Christianity. They say, well, you know, if, 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 if God is so good and he cared about, what, what about the, the person in the deepest, darkest, aboriginal jungle someplace who's never heard the name Jesus? You heard that argument? You know my response to that? I say to them, do you really care? Because if you care, you become a Christian, let me train you and I'll send you down there to tell them. <laughs> you don't really care. It's a red herring argument. Notwithstanding the fact that God can reveal himself anytime to anybody he wants, right? Doesn't necessarily need me to do it. Although once in a while he wants to use us. Now people, people are, are in the dark. And they're stumbling around and they're trying to find a way out of the dark. Somebody, somebody lead me. But what they need, what we all need, is not the direction and leadership of some godless person or some worldly institution or some program. What we need is the light of God. The light of God. We need a clear picture. A clear picture showing how to reach God. And a picture that gives us the assurance 
that we are acceptable to God. Because we all lack assurance. And we were all, in all of our relationships, we were always wondering, am I acceptable enough? Do you still like me today? Do you love me today? I mean, you know, have I been jumping through the hoops? Do I, am I doing the baseboards? Yes, you are. Okay. You see, and yet fullness of life is missed by so many. And that deep down assurance, the absolute certainty that we will live with God eternally is missing from so many. God knows this. God knows this. He knows that man's heart is blind. He knows that man's heart lacks assurance. He knows that. God is not clueless. God knows that man is limited in experiencing the fullness of life. God knows that, that man needs the way to God lit and lit brightly. God knows that man can never reach God unless God gives him light and shows him the way. Now, mankind is very inventive, very ingenious. We come up with all sorts of schemes and plans and based on our own human logic, but truth be known, our own human logic is fallible, isn't it? I mean, all of us have been absolutely certain about something based on what we thought, and later on, we were wrong. Is that true? I mean, so certain, I just know. We say, isn't that the same truth, same thing about Christianity? No, because Christianity is based on the continuity of this book. If you read this book, you read this book, you see that it is a book that's written over hundreds and hundreds of years in the continuity, and I'm trying to teach you some continuity through this Old Testament passages to see that it is relevant for us today. Picture is something that we all need and relate to. It's not something I just thought up. Although people sometimes ask me, where'd you get that? I say, I made it up. Teasing, teasing, teasing. You see, this is what the lampstand is all about. The table, the bread, pointed us to who? Jesus. The lampstand points us to? Yeah. The lampstand, by the way, was probably the most beautiful, ornate piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Beautiful. Zion, you read about it. We didn't read the passage, uh, but you read the passage and you see it. it is incredibly ornate. It was the first thing that, that captured the, the attention of the ministering priests as they entered into the holy place. Just imagine the experience of the priest who entered that room. The, the altar of incense, the smell of incense, the sweet smell of the incense filled that room. And as he peered into the room, this room without windows, a beautiful glow illuminated the altar of incense, the table, the bread, the lampstand. This beautiful glow. And, and the lamps were to be lit perpetually before the Lord. Terrific symbolism there. Terrific picture. As the priest would enter that room, a, a sense of awe and reverence would have to come over him. Just behind that veil is the presence of God, the incense, the glow, the lamp. Powerful, powerful imagery. That lampstand was the most beautiful piece of furniture. The design, the materials of the lampstand were exact and precise. Again, if you read the passage, you'll see God was very precise in the design. Make it this way. Much as the ark and the other pieces of furniture. Speaking to what? Obedience. Do it, do it exactly. Live your life exactly the way I'm telling you. This is 
how you are to live. Again, God himself designed the furniture and as well designed the lampstand. Human creativity and ingenuity had no part in the design of the lampstand or of anything in the tabernacle. God designed it all. That's why we we go to him. God, I, I want to follow your design. I want to do things the way you have meant for them to be done. And, and you've changed me. You've given me your spirit. You're enabling me to actually now do the things that you've designed for me to do. No person knew the way to approach God. Although, we, as I said earlier, we make up our ways. We think, well, I just approach God. No. No person knew how to approach God. No person knew how to please God in his worship. As you, if you read the book of Malachi, you see that, that, the, that the Jews had degenerated in their worship and they were bringing God just any old thing. Much as people do today, any old thing. A perfunctory offering. I'll give you part of my life. The, this is the easy part. I'll just let you have this. And the rest of it is for me to do what I want to do. Malachi castigates the priests and Israel for that. God and God alone knew how he was to be approached. God and God alone knew how he was to be worshipped. We humble ourselves and say, Lord, teach me, show me. The lampstand taught that a person needs light. It simply taught that a person needs light. A person needs illumination in order to know who God is and to know Him and to serve Him. Otherwise, we're clueless. And there's, and there's, there's a million different viewpoints about God. People say, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah. Well, tell me about Him. Well, you know, He's the man upstairs. God is not just the man upstairs. Excuse me. Oh, I tried Jesus. You don't just try Jesus. Remember, there were no windows in that holy place, no opening, other than certainly that closed door, which was the entrance. The holy place would have been in complete darkness without the lampstand. Complete darkness, just like the world, without the lampstand. It was the lampstand that gave light. It was a lampstand that illuminated the holy place so the priests could now approach God. They could serve God. They could minister as God would design. The the light of the lampstand symbolized the need of man for light, the need of man for illumination in order that man could know. God and that man could approach God, that man could know how to serve God. Just as we studied the table and the bread, the bread of the presence, we saw that true worship had to do with feeding on the bread of life, right? After all, this is all, it's all about worship, isn't it? The whole tabernacle, all the furnishings, our life, is to be lived as an act of what? Worship. It's all about worship. We can't worship without feeding on Jesus. That's how we worship. We can't worship without light. Beloved, if you just come to church to be entertained, if you just come to church to feel good, you're in the wrong church. How many have learned that? Oh, we'll have a laugh now and again, but... The point is, is that we're not here to be entertained. Our goal, we don't come here just to be happy. I, I want to be happy. I want to feel good about myself. I constantly have people tell me, you know, I come to your church and I don't leave feeling good about myself. I want to leave feeling... I said, that's not my purpose. <laughs> my purpose is to challenge you to think about what's true and right to force you to Jesus. If you come for any other reason, or if we, have, if we do this for any other reason, we're not having a worship service. We're just having a meeting. You can't have a meeting any place. 
We gather together to remind one another to be reminded of God. We gather together to look at His Word. We gather together to think about God and to praise Him. Worship. And we only worship God when we feed upon Him who is the table and who is the bread of life. And worship of God also has to do with walking in the light. Are you walking in the light? The lampstand points to God, ultimately. It points to God who shows man, again, how to approach Him and how to worship Him. It was God who designed that lampstand, illuminating the way. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation Whom shall I fear? The lampstand points to him. You're my light. You're my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, John writes this. He says, This is the message we have heard from him, and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. In other words, if I claim to be a Christian and yet I'm walking in the darkness, I'm, I'm, just a, I'm a hypocrite, I'm a liar, I'm an actor, I'm a pretender. And I don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his Son purifies us from all sin. If I'm walking in the light as he is in the light, guess what? He says, what's the natural, logical extension? I'm going to have fellowship with you. We're going to have fellowship together. Why? Because we're all walking in the light. If I'm not walking in the light, I don't want to have fellowship with you. I don't want to be bothered. I'll have fellowship with you on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week I'm going to go my own way, do my own thing. There's a direct connection with walking in the light and fellowship with each other. Don't miss that. And so if you're not fellowshipping with the body, if you're not walking with the, with the body, you're not staying with the body, you're out here, you're not walking in the light. You can say all day long you believe in Jesus, that's wonderful, but you're, the, the, the scripture says you're lying. Because the fruit isn't there. It's not just being a good person. It's not, it's not well, I don't, I'm not murdering, committing adultery, and running around and doing this and that. No, no. If you're not part of the body, an active, functioning part of the body, fellowship with the body, then you're lying. You're not walking in the light. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. All of this points to ultimately God, as you'll still see. The lampstand... All the imagery points ultimately to this. There will be no more light. There will not be a need for a lamp, a, la- a light or a lamp, or even the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Where's that? Where's that? That's in New Jerusalem. That's heaven. That's when it's all done. See, the lamp points us to God. Here's a lampstand in the tabernacle. But it's more than a lampstand. It points us. But the lampstand also, again, as I suggested earlier, points to Jesus Christ, not only as God, but also as the light of the world. He is God, but he's also the light of the world. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, who's the greatest messianic prophet in the Bible? Who is the greatest messianic prophet in the Bible? Come on, you should know this. Isaiah, very good. Because I already gave you the hint. Isaiah 9, 2. (laughs) Isaiah. I mean, you you just read Isaiah. You turn page after page, and there's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and Jesus fulfills them all. It's just a mind blower. You can hardly wait till we get to Isaiah. In your lifetime? Don't be funny. (laughs) Oh, man. 
Isaiah 9.2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Oh, boy, isn't that us? We were walking in the darkness. All of a sudden, man, one day a great light shines. We go, I was blind, but now I Light has dawned on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. John 1, 4. John speaks of Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. He lights up a life. I mean, you saw Jane's testimony just talking about her husband receiving the Lord. She's lit up like a Christmas tree. I can hardly wait to see Joe. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in what? Darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, he acknowledges the darkness. The people are walking in darkness. That he's the light of men. That you come to Jesus. And he miraculously lights up your life. It's not, this is not positive mental attitude stuff. This is not psychobabble. This is the miracle of God coming into a person's life and filling them, lighting up their life. I had a vision this morning of your husband standing next to you praising God. It's going to happen, I do. You hold on to that. Jesus Christ is the true lampstand. Jesus is the true lampstand. He came into the world to give light. He came into the world to give illumination so that we might know God, we might worship God, and we might serve God. As the light of the world, Christ fulfills all the symbolism of the lampstand. Christ and Christ alone is able to bring people out of the darkness, the darkness of sin and death, giving them the light of salvation and eternal life. Now, if you, if you just want natural light, you go outside. That's all you want, just natural light, you go outside. But if you wanted to walk in the light of the lampstand, you come inside. Isn't that true? The priests want a natural light, they go outside the tabernacle. You want the light of God, you come inside the tabernacle. I want real light. Natural light isn't enough. I want the real light, and I've got to come inside. John 1.9 tells us that Jesus is the true light that gives light to every man. There are people, well-meaning people, who counsel others simply by words. But the question is, are they words of life? And are they words of light? We're told that through hollow and deceptive philosophy, we can be deceived. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul is very pointed about this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and not on the basic principles or in the basic principles of this world, rather than on who? Christ. You see, beloved, Christ is not just another philosopher. He's not just another good man. He's not just another who, as God said to Job, darkened counsel by words without knowledge. Everybody's got advice. We say to people, well, it's just common sense. No! Don't you ever do anything based on common sense. You find most of all, common sense does not match up with the Word of God. <laughs> Words without knowledge. That lampstand is probably the most perfect picture of Christ found in the tabernacle. What's it made out of? Huh? Pure gold. You calculate the weight of the gold using equivalent measures from what we're told in the scriptures. 
approximately 75 pounds of gold was used to make the lamps. 70 at $450 an ounce. It's made out of pure gold. It sets him forth as pure gold. It sets him forth as God. Unequivocally. Just as he is. And in him there is no darkness. The lampstand also, by the way, pictures, guess who else? God's people. God's people as the light of the as God's witnesses to this world. You see, the, the, the imagery continues. Uh, recall, please, that as Christians, as believers, we are now called the what? The body of... We are the very embodiment of Jesus Christ in this world. Jesus died, buried, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, gave his spirit, said, you shall now be my witnesses. We're described in the Bible, in the New Testament, as now the body of Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, you are, you are the light of the world. Don't cover your light. Ephesians 5, 8. Paul writes, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Live as children of light. You have a whole new identity. I have a whole new purpose, a whole new direction. Live as children of light. We're called to be the light of the world. That lampstand points not to God only, not to Jesus only, but also ultimately to the church. We are to shine as God's witnesses to this world. In a world that's filled with darkness, God has placed his light in the hearts of his people. We are to illuminate the darkness. Now, one thing that's notable about the lampstand, it was not noisy. It didn't sit there and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. It just glowed. Ask yourself this question, do I glow do I glow? Do I complain? Am I crabby? What comes out of my mouth? Or do I glow? Every believer, every believer has the great privilege and the great responsibility to walk in the light so the world might see a witness of God's light. Lastly, the lampstand points us to the Word of God. The believer must have light and the light of God's Word in his life, her life, in order to, again, know God and serve God. The Word of God provides the believer light. When I need direction, I go here. God, I'm not sure what to do. I turn the pages and read. When I need wisdom, I go here. When I need comfort, I go here. When I need correction, God, show me where I'm wrong, I go here. When I need anything from the infinite counsel of God, I go to his word. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Oh, my. You can't get any more succinct, can you? Your word, oh God, is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Everybody knows these verses. All Scripture is God-breathed, or spoken, given, inspired by God. All Scripture. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, 
correcting and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture. The Word of God. How quickly we turn to other sources. How quickly we turn to other resources rather than saying, God, teach me. Teach me. Light up my understanding with your truth. Two questions. What are you feeding on? What are you feeding on? What's got your attention? What do you focus on? What are you feeding on? The world? Its philosophies? Entertainment? Or Jesus? The bread of life? What are you feeding on? Secondly, are you walking in darkness or the light of Jesus? I'll leave you to ponder those two questions. I'll leave you to wrestle with them. I'll leave you to surrender to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you. We love you this morning. Thank you again, Father, for the marvelous, marvelous pictures in your word. Help us to be people who consider these things, take them to heart. Lord, we are sluggish, we are slow, we're many times unwilling to surrender fully. Lord, work in us, have your way. We know that your will is the best. Help us, Lord, to embrace that. Amen. Let's stand and let's...